The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City. Hello, Story City. I have the privilege of reading our scripture this morning. If you wouldn't stand with me um, for the reading of God's word. We are in Colossians 1, 15 through 23, and it says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he, may not, he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Well, good morning, start. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm just so used to singing when I'm up here. That is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, if you don't know, I'm Christopher Ford and all. I'm the director of worship development here at Story City Church. Thank you. Uh, And if you've been around Story City for a little while, you probably know that we tend to teach our sermons in three points, otherwise known as a three-point sermon. We really thought about the name for a while. Uh, But I'm going to break the mold a little bit today, and I'm going to give you point number one right from the beginning. So point number one of where we're headed today is I cannot understand my true identity until I know his I cannot understand my true identity until I know his. Now, here's the thing. I didn't come up here and start singing on accident, right? I was trying to find a granted, somewhat silly way of demonstrating that knowing your identity is kind of important. For example, if I don't understand that my identity in this moment is not to lead you in worship, but is to preach the very word of God, then I might do something silly like sing my whole sermon, which would get old very quickly. So point number one of where we're ultimately headed today is I cannot understand my true identity until I know his. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good, good father, and we are so thankful for your son, Christ Jesus, Lord. I ask that as we hear your word today, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, and feet to walk out of this building and into our communities, into our homes, and live out what we hear today, Lord, that your word would radically transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've done this a little out of order. I've given you point number one, but we haven't even looked at the text I'm pulling that point from. So let's fix that, shall we? 
Colossians 1, 15 through 23 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now if you're reading this in your Bible, there's probably a little title or subtitle above it that says something like the preeminence of Christ. The preeminence of the preeminence, the preem, I feel like I'm in Finding Nemo when I try and say this word. The preeminence of Christ. Raise your hand if you said that this week. If you raised your hand, you're a liar. I don't believe anyone but Jared has said that and he's weird. Love you, bro. The preeminence of Christ. What does that mean? Well, Oxford Dictionary would define preeminence as the fact of surpassing all others or superiority. So when someone says the preeminence of Christ, they're trying to say Jesus is before all. He is above all. He is preeminent. He is superior. The preeminence of Christ. Preeminence means superiority. The other Christianese term that we often hear in reference with this passage is something called Christology, or some call it Christology. I don't because my name is Chris and I don't want to confuse anyone. Christology. The more academic among us might remember that ology means the study of. So what do you think Christology might be the study of? Christ, exactly. Christology is the part of theology that is dealing with the study of the work and personhood of Jesus Christ. So in this passage, we have the preeminence of Christ or superiority of Christ and Christology or the study of Christ. That's what our focus is here today. Now, let's also put this in the context it's being written. So Paul is not writing to us, right? He's writing to the church in Colossae, and he's specifically writing to them to combat some false teachers that are rising up. As Kyle laid out for us last week, the church in Colossae is dealing with a bunch of different teachers in the church and outside of it that say, hey, Jesus is is a good teacher. You should listen to him as much as you listen to the other good teachers, but that's where we should stop. He's just a good teacher. So Paul is writing to them to remind them of what an accurate view of Jesus looks like. But this leads me to what does a preeminent Christ and understanding that actually do in my daily life? Because if I'm honest, church, as a Christian who's been raised in the church, I often go, yeah, 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 Jesus died on the cross. He saved me from my sins, and I move on. And I don't know that I actually let the preeminence of Christ be something that affects my daily living. 
So what does it look like for the preeminence of Christ to affect my daily living? Well, I want to tell you a story from my own life, but I want to remind you of point number one. Point number one, right, was I cannot understand my true identity until I know his. (laughs) So I want to take you back to when I was six years old. I accepted Christ when I was six years old. By the time I was seven or eight, I would say he was my best friend. I had a really special time in my childhood where I spent most of my days at that time walking through my backyard, worshiping in my backyard, and the Lord had truly become my best friend. I had a faith that was not my parents, but was mine. It was influenced by my parents, but was genuinely mine. And that's a very sweet time for me. But you lead somewhere around high school, my heart started to believe some things that were contrary to the gospel. My heart started to let pride take root. And so as I was going into high school, I started to hear a lot of things from my friends and my parents' friends and my friends' parents, things like, yeah, man, Chris is a good Christian. Yeah, Chris is a good Christian kid. Chris can be trusted to do the right thing. What's the problem with all those sentences? It's about Chris. That's right. Chris, Chris, Chris. I'm what's being glorified. I'm what's being lifted up. And so I never would have told you this with my mouth, but my heart began to believe, unbeknownst to me, that I was part of my salvation, that I was to be glorified. And so if you uh, are listening to the story, you probably know where we're going. As Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before the what? Fall, and boy, did I ever. This pride led to more and more secret sin and a feeling of just being drained spiritually to my core. Have you ever felt that way? The kind of way where you sit in your bed and you stare at the ceiling and you say, God, where are you? I'm alone, and have you left me? As you cry tears into your pillow. Those kind of nights. And right about now, you, you might be saying to someone like me, hey, you know, yeah, but what about Isaiah 64.6? Isaiah 64.6 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sw- sins sweep us away. I'm saying you might be thinking of that because that's what I would have told me. And even at that time, again, I would have confessed with my mouth, yeah, 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 no, my righteous acts are as nothing. It's it's all about God. But Jeremiah 17 tells us that our heart is more deceitful than anything else. More deceitful than anything else. And here's what's hard in that for me is I didn't know this was going on. My heart deceived me first. My heart got me to believe in a false sense of humility where I could confess with my mouth what was true, but my heart believed the complete opposite, and I didn't slow down long enough to realize that my heart believed something contrary to the gospel. You see, what's interesting about Isaiah is when he says this, he's, he's not talking to us here in Burbank. He's writing it over 2,500 years ago to the nation of Israel, and he's begging them to come call to repentance. He's begging them to come out of their sin. So when he says, our righteous acts are as dirty rags for the Lord, he actually also doesn't say your righteous acts, right? He says our. He says our because even in the midst of calling them out of that, he authentically identifies as one of them, knowing that God is so much bigger than him that he's just as fallen as they are. 
It is our righteous acts that are as dirty rags. Similarly, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. Again, Paul says, I am the worst of them, not I was the worst of them. Paul authentically identifies as a sinner in need of a preeminent Christ. My, Paul's response was humility and my response was pride. But by the grace of God as this pride built and my life became marked by more secret brokenness and sin, he allowed me to get to a place where I finally broke down one day and confessed to my wife and family. But you know what followed that confession? It wasn't joy and freedom. It was dehabilitating shame, depression, and despair. I started to speak things into my heart like, I knew what was right, I did what was wrong. I mean, Jesus had been my best friend since I was a kid, and I still failed miserably. I deserve this. Do you hear what's wrong again? It's still about me. My pride's still operating. On pride, it was, look at me, I'm so great. And on shame, it was, I'm the worst. It's still about me. But by the grace of God, he led my wife and I to some incredible biblical counselors, and we began to unpack the next decade plus of our life. And although there are a lot of different examples I could give you from that time together of how the Lord radically changed our hearts and united us together and made our marriage stronger than ever, there's one memory I want to bring you back to. I'm sitting there with our counselors and we're talking about this dehabilitating sense of shame and the Lord gave me a vision and this is the vision. I'm sitting in a dark pit where I can't see anything. It's just blackness except way up at the top there's a little blue light. It's the sky. There's just a teeny little blue section of sky and if you had given me a stairwell out of that pit I wouldn't have used it because I knew one thing. I knew that I deserved to be there. And so as I looked up to the sky, I saw a ladder coming down from the heavens, and I heard the Lord say, come out. And I said, no. And he said, come out. And I said, no. And he said, come out. And I said, no, I have failed you. I knew you when I was a kid, and I have failed the God that I love. I deserve to be here. And he said, come out. And as I climbed this ladder out of the pit and I stepped out of the hole and Jesus put his arm around me and we began to walk, I turned around and behind me where this deep pit had been was green grass, the most beautiful green field I believe I will ever see. And the Lord said to me, you never go back there. Because if I, a preeminent Christ, who is firstborn, who is creator, who is God, if I sacrificed myself to present you to me holy, faultless, and blameless, then who are you to see yourself as any different? You see, church, we often beat ourselves up not because we knew what was right and we did what was wrong, We beat ourselves up because we don't have an accurate view of who Jesus Christ is. So we don't have an accurate view of who we are. I cannot understand my true identity 
until I know his. But let's put this in the context of our Colossians passage here today. So remember again, Paul's writing to combat the, peop, the false teachers that are saying Jesus was just a good teacher. He's not God. And by the way, do you think we hear that today? I mean, how often do you hear, hey, Jesus was great. Like, definitely, he said some good things. Listen to that. But like, you want to you wanna listen to everything he said? He said some things that, I don't know. I think he's just a good teacher. And the problem with that is that's not what the Bible says. It's not what Paul is claiming here. Paul says in verses 15 through 23, only nine verses. And in those nine verses, he says he, referring to Christ, 38 times. And in those 38 times, he refers to Christ as the following things. The image of an invisible God or visible image of an invisible God in verse 15. The firstborn over all creation, again in verse 15. Creator of everything. Creator of everything. He says it twice in 16. Before everything in verse 17. The one who holds everything together, again in verse 17. The head of the church or the body. The beginning in verses 18. Firstborn from the dead in verses 10 and 18. First place in everything in 18. Fully God in 19. Reconciler of all in 20 and 22. Peacemaker in 20. And physical sacrifice in 20 and 22. What Paul is saying here is God is so utterly, mind-blowingly big, he's not a good teacher. He is God. What's really cool is if you look at the structure of how he makes that argument, he also says that Jesus is creator, right? He starts out in verses 15 and 16 by saying he's the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is Jesus the creator. He was before everything and he created us. But then it's almost as if Paul says, well, no, hold on, that's, that's not enough. He's, he's, he's firstborn. He's firstborn before everything. Because in verses 15 and 16, he says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. And I'm reading the wrong verse again. What I meant to say was, it's verse 17 and 18 where he talks about being the firstborn. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. So he's creator. No, that's, that's not enough. He's, he's firstborn. He's, he's firstborn before everything. No, that's not enough. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. It's as if Paul is saying he was creator. No, you know, he's, it's not just that. He's firstborn before everything. No, it's not just that. He's, he's God. He is God. But then Paul turns a little bit and, and says, creator became creation. And he who is first before everything became last in sacrifice and maintained being a perfect God simply to unite us back to himself. Verses 20 and 23. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body, that's him becoming creation, through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith. Now don't hear what Paul's not saying there. He's not doubting that they will remain steadfast. You could translate the Greek to also mean because still you remain or because you will still remain. He is, he's not questioning that they will. He's saying, I know you do, and I know you have, and I know you will. So if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So this brings us to point number two for the day. Point number two is I cannot understand my true identity until I know his Sound familiar? But oh, how easily we forget this, church. Our hearts wander. Our hearts wander and we think, yes, that's amazing. God is great. I wonder what I'm going to eat for lunch. So how do we consistently bring our hearts back to being in awe of a preeminent Christ? Before we answer that, I actually want to go to another passage real quick, which is Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in many various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he has made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty. Now, this is another letter authored by Paul, and here again to a completely different group of people. He says the universe was made through him, the Son, Jesus. He says that he's the exact representation of God, meaning he is God. Again, he's proclaiming that Jesus is preeminent, but he doesn't just keep saying, yeah, Jesus is God, let's move on. He spends time expounding on and trying to capture new ways and thinking about the grandeur of Christ. As I have spent the past few months reading Colossians and specifically reading 1, 15 through 23, and I've grasped and I've grappled with how do I exclaim how great Jesus Christ is, the grandeur as Paul's going for, how do I try and get that into words, I have felt my heart become more in awe of who Christ is. I have felt me, I have felt myself flutter under the weight of who he is and be humbled by who he is. So how do we keep ourselves in awe of a preeminent Christ? Here's how we ruminate on it. We ponder it. We spend time contemplating the preeminence of Christ and what it means. And here's why. We will never fully understand. We never will What I mean is, is the more we try and grasp the grandeur of who Christ is, the more we're going to say, whoa, that humbles me. That puts my identity in perspective. That puts my career, my life, my wife, my family, the very core of who I am in in perspective. Jesus is so good, so powerful, so far beyond anything that we could never comprehend him. But here's the thing, we better try. 
Because in that trying to comprehend, we start to understand just a little bit more and just a little bit more and just a little bit more. And with every little revelation the Lord gives us, we understand more of who he is. And so we understand a little bit more of who we are. I cannot understand my identity until I know his. So we ponder Christ's preeminence in the face of a culture that says, Jesus, Jesus was great. He's just a good teacher. And when our careers and our industry tells us, hey, your career is first and and you need to focus on that, we come back and we read verses 15 and 18, which says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. No, Christ is first. My career is not, nor is anything else. And when our friends praise our talents because we've created a beautiful masterpiece, whether it's a new song or, or maybe we've mixed the audio for a new video game or our new show just came out, when we're praised for our talents, we have to go back and remind ourselves of 16, which says, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Our friends may praise our talents, but ultimately we create because of him and we create for him alone. Or when you log into your social media platform of choice and you typically hear one of two things, you're typically either bombarded with first, hey, just work out a little bit more, just be a little more attractive, just be a little better, get this self-help book, just be a little better than what you are now. You're not good enough here. Or we hear you're, just, you're enough. You're loved just as you are. You don't need to do anything. You are good on your own and you don't need anyone else or anything else. And to that... We have to read and remind and ruminate on verses 19 through 22, which says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, that's us, as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body, through his death, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. No, church, we are neither good enough, nor do we need to be better to appease him. The perfect Christ, who is firstborn creator, willingly gave himself to present us back to himself. He did that. We did not. It has nothing to do with us bettering ourselves, but everything to do with us recognizing his preeminence. And we live in a world that constantly tries to distract us from spending time thinking about his preeminence. We live in a world where we have to be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. That's 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. We must dwell on the preeminence of Christ. There is a very real enemy in the world, and the way that we combat that enemy is by understanding who he is and who we are in light of who he is. 
So whether you have been a believer for 50 years or 50 hours, we are all in desperate need to comprehend him just a little bit more. We are in a lifelong pursuit to be in awe of a preeminent Christ. But can we be honest for a second? Can I be honest for a second? This is easy now. You know when this gets hard? This gets hard in 30 minutes. This gets hard in an hour, in a day, certainly in a week when I'm outside those doors and life is coming at us and our sin is coming at us and our friends, our wife, our, our husband, our mom, our dad, our friends, our own sin, ourselves are coming at us and our minds are swimming in this and we don't slow down and stop and think and ponder his preeminence. That's when that gets hard for me. And so my challenge for us here today is that we do something that we can actually apply this week. And here's what I'd ask. Most of us have a phone. If you don't have a phone, see me after service. I have an old razor I'd like to sell you. <laughs> if you're under 25, a razor's an old phone. It's not about hygiene. It just opened like this. Yes, phones used to open. Just, I'll explain it later. But if we all, most of us have a phone. So I'd ask that you, if you haven't already, pull up Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Or alternatively, if you have a physical copy of the Bible, just flip to that and pull up the photo app on your phone. If you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, you can see our next steps table in the lobby and we will get you one. We would be more than happy to do that. So if you're opening your phone, here's what I'd like to do. Take Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and then take a screenshot of it. Now, if you're over 90 and you're in here and you're saying, what's a screenshot? (laughs) That's okay. I was homeschooled. I know I look young, but it adds about 20 years to my technological age, so I'm right there with you. A screenshot is a photo on your, uh, of what is on your screen. You can do that on an iPhone by clicking the two buttons on the side, or alternatively, if you flip open your physical Bible, you could just take a photo of verses 15 through 20. And then I would ask that you take that photo and you set it as your background for seven days. I'm not asking for a month. I'm not asking for longer than a week. At day eight, you can go back to the picture of your wife, your kid, Justin Bieber, whatever it is you have. But for seven days, make this your background. Now, here's the thing. I'm not even asking you to read it every time you see it. I'm asking you to read one of those five verses when you see your background. Take 10 seconds. It's not even 10 seconds. Take 10 seconds, read one of those verses, and then ask the Lord this. Lord, remind my heart who you are and who that makes me. Lord, remind my heart who you are and who that makes me. So this brings us to our third and final point for today. Our third and final point today is... Anybody want to take a guess? That's right. I cannot understand my true identity until I know his. And look, if you're in the room today and you're like, I don't, you know, I don't know about this Jesus thing. I think maybe he was just a good teacher. Or I'm I'm leaning towards he, maybe he is God, but I just don't know. We're glad you're here. You are welcome here. This is not a place to come and perform and be just like someone else. This is a place to come and hear what we believe is the ultimate truth, which is the word. We believe that wholeheartedly, but we're also a messy, broken group in need of a preeminent Christ. So welcome to that. 
We are glad you are here, and we'd love to talk to you. If you have any questions, you can ask me or anyone else on staff, or as you walk around, you might see some people in pink lanyards. Those are people who have chosen to serve us today. We are very thankful for them. But you can ask them your question, and if they can't answer it, they will find someone who can. Thank you for being here. But ultimately, church, I just spoke for roughly 30 minutes to make one singular point. We cannot understand our true identities until we know his. The preeminent Christ is not just an important anecdote that we need to have stored somewhere in the recesses of our brains. It is foundational to what we believe and radically affects our daily lives. A preeminent Christ, first before everything, became creation to sacrifice himself, simply to unite us back to him. That's the God we serve. Lastly, I want to point out one last observation. Having an accurate view of who Christ is leads us to be humble and hopeful servants. Here's why I say that. If you look at the end of the passage, you see that Paul says, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Paul is saying, I am a humble servant of Jesus because he died to present me holy, faultless, and blameless. I didn't do that, so my response has to be humility. You remember the pride I discussed about starting in high school? You know how you combat that? It's this. It's genuine believing that there is a preeminent or superior Christ. If my heart genuinely believes in a God that is that big, my only response is humility. If Christ is so preeminent that he is firstborn and creator and God and willingly sacrificed himself to unite me back to him and I'm just some kid from Texas that managed to not break some Ten Commandments, those aren't the same. They're not even close. There's no comparison. My response has to be, God, you are so big, I am humbled by you. But here's the thing. Paul also says the gospel is hopeful. And it's hopeful because that preeminent Christ loved us enough to come down and unite us back to him for eternal life. That means that there is never, ever, 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 ever a time where we as believers do not have hope. We always have hope. So an accurate view of Christ leads us to be humble and hopeful servants. I cannot understand my true identity as a humble and hopeful servant until I understand his identity as a preeminent Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your sacrifice. We are thankful to serve a God, to be humble and hopeful servants of a God that would come down, that would, would bring himself down to sacrifice himself. Lord, we ask that as we go out this week, as we go into our homes, as we go into our communities, as we go into our work, that you would grow in us a sense of awe of who you are, of who Jesus Christ is. 
This wouldn't be something we profess with our mouths and our hearts believe something contrary, Lord, but instead we'd get quiet with you and we would just ask you to lay our hearts bare. And in that laying us bare, Lord, that you would reveal who you are and we would believe who we are in light of who you are. That we would run after you with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.